Make yourselves comfortable. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Welcome to Legacy Church. If I've not met you yet, I look forward to meeting you after the service. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm the lead teaching and preaching pastor and excited about this passage we get to look at today. It's going to be a little bit different today. Um, as we're in between series work. But if you have a Bible or a device that you use, go ahead and turn to Micah 6. It'll be that part of your Bible marked up and underlined and highlighted that is Micah, right? If you don't know where it is, just go to your table of contents and make it easy on yourself. Um, but that's going to be where we're at today. And while you're turning there, we are actually coming up on the 244th birthday of the Boston Tea Party. And I know you're excited about that, right? Getting ready already. I was just thinking when I was putting this sermon together, I was thinking about the fact that it was when I was a junior in high school, I remember being in history class and saying out loud, out of my mouth, I thought that's where important people drank tea in Boston. And I remember the history teacher looking at me and saying, that is so stupid. <laughs> that is not what the Boston Tea Party is. So if your history is as bad as mine, right, this is a moment in mid-December 244 years ago, where about 100 men, give or take 30, 100 men dressed up as Mohawk Indians, partly to um, confiscate their real identity, but also to identify with the people that lived in the country before Europe came over. And what they did is they snuck onto three boats and found 243 big chests of tea, dumping it all into the Boston Harbor, right? And the reason they did this is because the governing group of people overseas, again in England, were taxing them, but they didn't have any representation in that body. So they flipped out, they tumped over the tea, and that is America's first real protest. And it's actually one of the, the, the matches that lit off the revolution. You can almost say that America was built on the back of protesting. I think it's ironic today that we still have people dressing up, covering their identity, and tumping things over. A lot has not changed in 244 years. But if you look back at John Adams' diary and his personal diary, which I'm sure he's very excited we're reading out loud today, in his personal diary, he wrote this, the people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking. This destruction of the tea is so bold and so daring, so firm, intrepid and inflexible. It must have so important consequences and so lasting that I can't but consider it as an epic in history. And of course, this moment in history has been cited and referenced by revolutionaries for over 200 years now. But any student of protesting and activism will tell you that even in America, that art form has been leaking over the years. The, the, the art form that is activism and protesting I found this interesting article I worked my way through that uh, Nathan Heller wrote for The New Yorker. The title of it is, Is There Any Point to Protesting? And he basically goes back and does a history and the evolution of protesting and activism in the United States, noting why in some instances you see sweeping reform and changes at the legislative level, even at the cultural level, and then some, some moments, the, the protest is just forgotten almost overnight, right? I mean, remember Occupy Wall Street? Barely, right? That was just a year ago. How about the Women's March? That was in January. 
And, and listen, that is the single biggest one-day protest in American history, the Women's March, in over 900 cities. And if I asked you to tell me what it was about, you would ramble off something that had something to do with women. Congratulations, that is in the title. It was a Women's March, but you couldn't tell me what it was about, could you? And it's because it was about a lot of things. It was about LGBTQ rights. It was about immigration reform, save the planet. It was about reproductive rights. It was about all kinds of things. But the, the funny thing is, is as far-reaching as that was on a Saturday, 900 cities, that when people clocked in in the government on Monday, nothing happened, business went on as usual. There was actually no effect to that that we can document on books. And so Heller says one of the biggest reasons protests are not as fruitful as they used to be is that they don't require leaders anymore, just viral hashtags. Just viral hashtags. And when you think about that, because of social media, you could just basically show up to an event and protest. You don't have to be rounded up by a leader with a clear, compelling voice, with a vision for the future. I mean, think about some older protests in our, in our country's past. Think of the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, you've got some great leaders that filled up books after book. I mean, you've got some incredible leaders that thought on a painstaking level what the future could look like, down to how long a protest should be, how we should finance it, and they were always laying down tracks of what the future of this cause should look like, developing and nurturing the cause, building leadership pipelines for the future. You saw that, but now you could just be a weekend warrior. You don't even have to have a, a leadership in your cause. You can literally go on Saturday and jump in with Antifa or the KKK and dump stuff over and set it on fire and you can go back to work at GameStop on Monday and you could have both lives going at the same exact time because there's no real cause to be nurtured and there's no real leader to keep you on track. So speeches like I have a dream and bus boycotts have kind of given way to just mad people being mad at other mad people about mad topics and punching each other. So we've come a long way since Boston with leaders like Sam Adams, John Adams, and the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, come a long way. And then there's the church, right? Now Heller's not speaking to this, but I'll speak to it. And I'm not speaking about the institution of the church as much as I'm talking about the people that make the church up, which is the best definition of the church. Because we're a people that have also had a revolutionary leader go before us and round us together someone who has put us on a cause of sorts. And by the way, when I talk about social justice today, I'm not just talking about race. That is the biggest aspect of social justice that I'd say is on fire today, and rightfully so. But I mean, it could be anything from abortion to political corruption. It could be the sex trade, human trafficking. So the real question that I'd like to ask is, for you and me today, what is our responsibility as we read the Bible and as we see Jesus and we see God's gospel over us, but then we look up and we read the news and we see the world and we see injustice, and we're kind of in the middle. How do we handle that as Christians, responsibly? How do we do that, right? I think the best way to jump into this is just to say that many people, missiologists and anthropologists, have kind of noted in different language the same thing that Tim Keller talked about in his book, Center Church. So Tim Keller's a great anthropologist, a great missiologist and church planner, and he noted that there's basically four different kinds of churches in Knoxville, or any city. There's four basic food groups when it comes to churches. There's churches in the city, churches against the city, of the city, and for the city. So think about churches in the city. This would be a church 
that focuses on the insiders. It's about recruiting insiders, developing programs and strategies and values for insiders, right? So the city is not super important, except that's where they get all of their insiders. The city is an address. So if you were to maybe build a metaphor, you could think of a cruise ship. It's only fun if you're on board, right? It's only fun if you're on the ship. If you're on the ship, high five, the bar's over by the Tiki Hut, I'm glad you're here, you're one of us. That's a church in the city. Our church happens to have a ton of them, right? We've never tried to be this church, they do grow quickly, but I don't think the city ever feels the weight of a church like this. So when they crumble and when they go away, I just don't know that anyone even notices. And why would they, right? Then there are churches against the city. A little bit different, but still focusing on insiders. But instead of the city being a place that insiders can come from, the city becomes a place full of dirty, broken, evil, rotten people, right? So change the metaphor. Not so much a cruise ship anymore, a little bit more of a fort. A little bit more of a fort. Keep them out unless they become just like us, then they can stay. Otherwise, don't touch them, you can catch something. And that could be a problem, right? We've also never desired to become a church like this, but to build a church where everybody is welcome that this is a hospitable environment. Then you have churches of the city. This is a church that has lost its distinction in the world, right? Forgetting that they were actually sent into the world to permeate and to facilitate change in the world through the power of the gospel. They just kind of become a meeting. And this is a trap that a lot of young churches fall in as well. They've kind of even gotten a name. This is what many people think of whenever they say the emergent church. And a lot of the reason the emergent church comes about is because they're trying to push away and repel from the cruise ship and the fort. So down come the walls. We need to be a hospitable place where everyone feels welcome. But the only way to really do that is to start taking some of your most offensive doctrines and chucking them out the window. Might not, might not even talk about sin. So it loses its permeability. It loses its, its hold. It loses its gospel voice. And then we have churches for the city. Right. This is going to focus on equipping insiders to love outsiders well. Focusing on equipping insiders to develop, lead, and disciple, and love outsiders well. So the city for a church like that is more than a dress. It's more than just a place that holds a bunch of dirty people, but it is actually a broken place that God loves so much that he is willing to come down and give his life and then speak through his people to a city so broken. And then our goal in planting and growing legacy has always been to plant a church like that. To be a church for this city. Not just in and of or against, but to be a church for this city. Because the city is more than just an address for us, right? This is why you rarely hear me preach a sermon without saying the word Knoxville. You might catch that I do that. I'm addressing Knoxville. Or maybe I'm offering you Knoxville. I'm trying to provoke you to think about Knoxville. I get it that people might listen to this from other places in the country, that's fine, insert your city. But Knoxville is what I'm dying for, right? And, and, and to be honest, this is our city. And we have a mandate, we have a mission. Our mission for this city, our mission statement is that we exist as a church to lead Knoxville, to enjoy Jesus, enjoy his people, and enjoy the broken world as we make disciples of those who will do the same before us. So what this really means for you and me, if you're a part of this church, is that we cannot afford to be tone deaf or silent when our city is concerned, P particularly when it comes to injustice raising its head here and there, particularly in that case. That's especially important for us. 
because we are his bride on earth, and therefore we must seek the welfare of the people who are oppressed, beaten down, broken, and left, marginalized, those who can't speak for themselves. Right? So let me be clear, just not to be confused. When I say social action or social justice, I'm not saying that social justice is the goal. Social justice is not just for the sake of social justice or for justice's sake. The whole goal of social justice is the gospel, right? It's to lead people to see a different reality, to lead people to see what God has done for mankind through the person of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the purpose of social justice is. It's literally for us as a church to intrude and interrupt the chaos that is in the world so that we can show the world and speak to the world of what God has done for us. That's the point of social justice. Otherwise, there's really no cosmic benefit to feeding the poor and to doing something that is radical in order to help them with justice if they're just going to perish and never hear the word of God. It does no good for them to die fed but still really hungry, if you know what I mean. I mean, it does us no ultimate cosmic good to get all the different skin colors, to have their kids play on the same playground if everybody walks away from that and nobody worships the name of Jesus. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't do any good to revolutionize healthcare if the, if the body prospers, yet the soul dies. I hope you see where I'm going with this because being loud on a megaphone is just not the win. Building a community garden, as cool and as hip as that is, that's actually not the win either. Changing immigration reform is not the win. The gospel's the win. These are just steps that we use to get to the gospel. All right? It's important that you hear that because churches really can get on the wrong rail there. and I, <laughs> We're not beyond that. So, discipling the city to love Jesus, that's a win for us. Now, I know that this is a long preamble, but I want to talk about this today because two weeks ago, I implored you and begged you and tried to recruit you to help me build a church here that would not desegregate in this environment and have beautiful uh, just diversity and texture when it comes to culture and ethnicity in this room just to desegregate as soon as this is over and everyone go back to their own different puddles and pockets, right? But to build something very different here. I told my wife later on, out of all the sermons I've preached in my life, I know that wasn't the most artistic sermon, but I do think it's the most important sermon I've ever preached. I just feel like it is. But I think this one's right up there with it because I'm recruiting you again. I need help to build a people, not just to be more diverse, but to seek social justice in our city, our city, our city. To seek social justice and be a church for the city. And I think in order to do that, it requires you and I be gospel formed in our protesting, to be Jesus shaped in our activism. I think that's what it requires. So for that, we're gonna look into Micah 6. Micah 6 is a really cool passage if you get a chance to spend some time in there. But I'm going to jump in to verse 3. This is Micah 6, verse 3. Again, it'll be up on the screen. If you didn't bring anything with you to read it, that's totally fine. And God is speaking through the prophet Micah, saying to God's people this, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim and Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Right? 
So that's God speaking. And then the people come back. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, with the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And that last verse is the key right there for us today. He has told you, O man, what is good. Knoxville, Legacy Church, God has told us what is good and what he requires of us. And that is to seek justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. So listen, this is a cool passage because there's a bit of an indictment that comes from God. And then there's an attempt from mankind to answer that indictment. Okay, God is basically saying it this way. Hey, church, remember when things weren't going so well for you in Egypt, when there was tons of social injustice coming your way, when you never got a fair shake, when you were oppressed and beaten down and even enslaved. You remember those days before I came and freed you? Those were good days, huh? Remember that? To which the people said, what do we do? What do we do? We could give offerings, even big offerings, even expensive ones. We could even give our kids. We could even give our body. And God says, this is what you do. Be just. Be just to those around and from a place of kindness and humility. So it's not just justice being commanded here that's naked. It's a justice that is cloaked with humility and kindness. And so what this means is that our justice as God's church will look different than social justice that comes from the world. It's just going to look a little bit different, right? This is important because if you feel dirty every time you flip on CNN or look at your app and you see people with masks on being passionate about passionate topics, tumping things over and kicking them and setting them on fire, if there's a piece of you that says, man, I really wished I was like that because they at least love their cause and they're doing something about it, don't. Don't give in to that. You're called to be a totally different kind of activist. And the activist you are called to be probably won't show up on CNN, probably won't show up on the news at all. I'm called to be different. I know it looks like it gets stuff done. And I just talked about a time where almost 250 years ago, people tumped stuff over, all dressed up and freaked out, and it caused a revolution, which caused a country. I'm just going to submit that our hero and captain did things a little different, and he started something that built a little bit more than just a country. I mean, think about the whole Roman Empire when it crumbled. It felt the weight of a church, not because they were flipping things over, not because they were setting things on fire and pepper spraying everybody. It felt the weight of the church because the church was scooping up babies and the handicapped and the elderly and discipling them, teaching them to forgive their parents and those who did harm against men. So gospel form justice, that seeks a different kind of empathy. And it goes way past just a common protest or a visit to whatever GoFundMe is going on right at that time. This kind of justice will require your life. It will require your life. It costs Jesus his life. It will cost you your life. It's important that you know that. Your endeavor to serve this city and defeat injustice, if it's empty of empathy, it just won't carry you very far. I think I also need to be clear in just one point as well. I'm not talking about when I say empathy, I'm not talking about white guilt, okay? I'm not talking about wealth guilt either, which are both very real things. Now, guilt will push people into action. It will. But that is on the back of obligation. 
I will do this because I feel guilty, so I'm offering the Lord something that I feel obligated to do, which is no sense of worship at all, and it's not the way that we were meant to move into action anyway. Humility is something very different. Empathy is something very, very different. Guilt is not humility. Humility is not guilt. In fact, I think if you serve somebody or you serve a cause from the place of guilt, you're not serving that person, you're serving yourself so that you won't feel guilty anymore. In fact, I think a lot of protesting that happens today is to, is to just kind of massage guilt. I mean, you can go back and read the studies of all the people that were protesting at Occupy Wall Street. Interesting how a lot of them just buckle-wearing suburbanites that came out from the cul-de-sacs. They weren't in the 1%, grant you, but they're in the top 2 or 3%. I'm not going to say that they were all out there because they felt guilty. I think a lot of them felt guilty. It will move people into action. It's not what we're looking for. It's, death, it's not gospel form for certain. I think empathic, gospel-centered activism, it's going to require you and I putting down guilt and picking up empathy and humility and kindness. And I think it also requires you and me to reevaluate where our opinions came from, right? Where did we get our foundational way of looking at the world, our worldview, right? For instance, when I say things like white guilt or white privilege, welfare, right? Affirmative action. I say these words, it doesn't take long for you to have an opinion. It was right there waiting, wasn't it? You just had one. I said, welfare, you had an opinion. White privilege, not me. Everyone's got these opinions that just kind of come to the top. Where did you get those opinions, right? This is why we can't talk about politics and religion at Thanksgiving dinner, right? Because everybody's got these immediate opinions. Everybody's got them, but there's no referee at the table, so it just turns into madness. Where did you get them? Were they biblically informed? Were they gospel formed? Or did you just get them because of where you grew up and who you grew up with? Maybe something impactful happened to you as you were growing up and that went a long way to inform how you see reality. I think a large step in humility is being able to put them down long enough to see what the gospel and the Bible say to us. That is a hard process. If you think that you have done it and it was not a wrestling match, you probably didn't do it. You probably did not do it. I love how Matthew 23, Matthew 23, 23, it's, I don't know if it'll be up on the screen or not, but this is where Jesus is going nuts a little bit on the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe. This means they're doing something good. This means they're doing something that they're supposed to do. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So they neglected justice around them. They neglected mercy and faithfulness around them. But think about it. These are people that were groomed for this. You, you didn't just become a Pharisee overnight. They grew up in a culture where certain things were expected, where they were taught. So they grew up with a, with a worldview, with a way of looking at things, the prejudices that they had, the bigotry that they had. You don't think they were taught that? It was at least reinforced. And I think you could still find them today. Speaking on news networks, no empathy, no mercy. But what Jesus does in this passage is he calls them to be just in mercy or with mercy and faithfulness. So he's trying to shatter their grid a bit because that's what the gospel happens to do. It shatters our grid. Even the passage we're in today with Micah, empathy. Empathy is just your ability to step into somebody else's shoes and feel what they're feeling. Harder than it sounds. 
your ability to step out of your shoes. That's what it means, to step out of your shoes and into their shoes to feel what they're feeling. Humility is just the ability to consider others more valuable, to consider them first and primary. Kindness, kindness is just the ability to labor for somebody even when they're disagreeable. That is what we're hearing God tell us through Micah and that is what Jesus did. Jesus had empathy, stepping out of his shoes and into our shoes. He was humble, considering us above himself and he was kind, laboring for us, even though we were a very disagreeable people. You see, this has to be our grid, replacing whatever grid we walked in here with. Whatever grid that you picked up, whatever grid that you came in that you were certain was the right one, it needs to be confronted with the Bible. Because we are called to be empathetic, humble, and kind. And this requires a little bit of a perspective shift. I mean, here's an example. I'm gonna throw a hot topic out there and I'm not gonna speak to what I think on it, okay? But the monument issue, can we talk about that for a minute? Because everyone's got an opinion. The mon- what do we do with them? Do we keep them up? Do we take them down? Stick them in a museum? Put a little plaque with an asterisk on the bottom of it? I mean, what are we doing with these monuments? I mean, I, I gotta be honest, I've been a little bit all over the place with this. I've, I've heard all the arguments on it. And to be very, very honest with you, I'm a little bit afraid of the topic. Because as the mob and the people and the population is actively tearing down symbols of oppression, don't think they're not coming for the cross next. It's the most offensive symbol on earth. They are coming for the cross. It will get torn down, ripped off your shirt, pulled off the back of your car, you can count on it, right? So it's frightened me a little bit, right? I mean, look at the, I read this the other day because I'm a little bit of a college football nerd, but even the horse, that the USC Trojan mascot rides into the stadium on as that football program attempts to be relevant again. As that happens, the name of that horse is Traveler, which happens to be the same name as the horse that Robert E. Lee sat on, and that is too much for many people. It's too close to home, and it's got to go away. And when I first heard that, I thought, that's stupid. Come on. Come on. Columbus Circle in New York. It's likely to be renamed in your lifetime. A lot of states, they've already taken Columbus Day away and they've replaced it with Indigenous Peoples Day. And I'm talking about like 12 or 15 states have done that already, right? See, already, I'm saying a few things. Do you see how you have opinions already? Isn't that amazing how quickly they come up? Didn't have to work those up, did you? Some women that have felt abused by Bill Clinton are demanding that his statue be torn down. Some people that don't agree with Theodore Roosevelt's imperialism are demanding that his statue be pulled down. Don't say the cross isn't on that list and don't say the church is not next. So through my fear, I've had to ask God to give me humility here. I've had to beg the Holy Spirit for an empathetic heart as I look at these issues. And that's hard because it's not natural. I don't want to step out of my shoes. My shoes are the right shoes. What are you talking about? What I think is right. Why would I entertain what you're saying for one minute? It doesn't even make any sense. And so I hear many people say how concerned they are for our history being cleansed away and rewritten. I hear good people saying how they want our children and our future generations to know everything about our country accurately, the good and the bad. I hear that. You know what I also hear, though? when I'm asking God for humility and empathy, I hear a different story. I hear 
a little bit of a sensitivity coming on me as I need to be sensitive about the symbols that point to generations of oppression, how hard that could be for people. Let me remind you, at the time that many of those Confederate generals were at the height of their influence, a black man was worth three-fifths of a real man. And, and the most valuable commodity traded at the time. Three-fifths, it'd take two black men to equal one white man. That's truth. So if it comes to a black friend walking by a statue with Robert E. Lee standing there looking triumphant, I'm asking that person to just deal with it. Walk by that, even though that person and all the people that were around him may have considered you subhuman, you should be able to get over that. That's a little much for me. That's a little difficult. So the empathetic part of me says something a little bit different. Even the pastors that I have, or the pastor friends that I have who are black, the 4th of July is a little bit of a bittersweet moment for them as well. And I remember the first time I would read the articles and talk to them about how the 4th of July was just not such of a big celebration for them. I remember the first thing in my heart was, that's kind of unpatriotic, man. But remember, when our country became emancipated, <laughs> their lineages did not. They were still in chains. Again, bittersweet. So, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to come in. I'm asking the Holy Spirit to make me humble and empathetic but the question still remains, how can I be a Jesus-shaped activist? And, and here's even a, maybe a closer-to-home question. How can we see empathy developed in us? Because how do you care when you just don't care, in other words? You just don't care. I mean, we see protests come and go all the time, right? Someone's kneeling at a football game. We see somebody spray-painting whatever, and then it has to get cleaned off, and then someone spray-paints it again, and then they clean it off. And we see that stuff all the time. And, and it's confusing now, isn't it? There's issues underneath the issues, and it's so fast to keep up with everything. It's so difficult. And besides, besides, we've got our own injustices to deal with, don't we? And we've got our own social injustices to get our arms around and deal with that. I don't want to get involved with some big thing. I don't even know which sign to pick up, and someone's going to pepper spray me no matter which side of the stupid blockade I'm on, right? So why do it? Why do it? Who has time for this? And what should it look like? I think Jesus does us another big favor here in the book of Luke. And so I'm going to turn to Luke. This will be up on the screen, but if you're fast, you can turn there as well. It's going to be Luke 10. Luke 10, verse 30. It's a parable that you've heard before, but within the context of what we're talking about today, attempt to listen to it with a little bit of a different ear. The 30th verse of the chapter 10 in the book of Luke says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Okay, stop. Now, very cool passage. Because when you zoom out, humanity, humanity is being mobbed and broken and left on the side of the road. We see it all the time. We see it in our city, we see it on the news. Battered, beaten, oppressed, seeking for welfare. 
seeking for help because they can't provide it themselves. Injustices, grave injustices committed against them. That is the church's hallmark. This passage is an anchor in the Christian hallmark to care for, to provide for, to speak for, to invest, to love, to create space, to become close. But this is more than just about us bandaging others at our costs. This actually, this passage, it lands us at the foot of the cross first. We're rescued before we rescue, right? We're rescued before we rescue because it is at the side of the road where Jesus found us and bandaged us whenever we were unable to cry out or help ourselves or bandage ourselves or even keep ourselves going. In fact, we were dead and he came to us, we didn't even ask. The world couldn't do anything for us, it just keeps moving. But Jesus stops. I mean, this parable, it's about mercy and justice, but you see how it's anchoring us in a place where our social action looks radically different than the world's. This is not, Luke 10 is not where social action is, I guess, being derived from for the major part of the protesting world. But it has to be for us. We are the beaten man before we are the rescuer. Jesus is the rescuer for us. So you cannot seek the well-being of others or even care unless you've tasted it yourself. If you struggle to care or have empathy, you might, likely, are having a hard time wrestling with what the gospel has done for you. For you, how you were found, the activism, the protesting that went forth for you, because that's how you care. God in Jesus has taken all the wrath and fury against sin upon himself, upon his own shoulders. And he did this to satisfy, hear me, he did this to satisfy justice, justice. There was a real justice that's being required. And Jesus gets to speak to us about justice because he felt the price tag of justice, personally. Isaiah 53 says that he was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised, penalized, reprimanded for our injustices. This is all true. You see, the gospel shows that God is just and he requires justice. Big problem, we are unjust. He is just and he requires perfect justice, but the big problem is is we are very, very, very unjust, unjust to each other, unjust to him. And because of our sin against God, we deserve judgment and that satisfies God's judgment is justice, justice on us. And there could be no exception. There could be no exception or else God's not just anymore. Because for us to get away with a sin-filled life, that would be a gross injustice. I mean, think about it this way. Uh, You hear through the news, whatever news station you listen to, that a human trafficker, a massive one, was just caught and hauled before the courts, right? And the judge just lets him go. Why? Just because. What would you do? You would twist inside. That is wrong, you would say. An injustice has happened. That person has sinned a grievous sin, and they are not being punished, right? We all do this. Every day we do this. Every day our form cries out for justice, right? I cannot, I cannot get through a football game without complaining about the referees. If I was ever an athlete on a, major, on a major scene, every single, even if we won the game by 50 points, every single post-conference would be, well, you know, the officials, they had it out for us the whole time. It's amazing we won the game, you know? I would always have it. I always have this hard problem with referees not being perfect. I need them to be perfect. And of course, when I mean perfect, I mean for my team. But I need them to be perfect at all times. And it'll crawl under my skin for days. 
And that's just a stupid game. Imagine if it was a human trafficker getting loose for no reason. Hey, hey, imagine if it was us not having wrath aimed at us because of our injustice against the holy God. Enter Jesus, though. Because God demands justice be met, but he also provides his own answer. He demands justice, and then he provides a recipient for the wrath that creates justice. So this is why we always say that God's love and God's justice are exercised at the same time on the cross. And so what does this mean for us? It means we're free now. We're free. And now we get to see what gospel-centered activism actually looks like. Because Jesus never says, it's not my issue. They'll figure it out. It's too confusing. I don't have time. But he also doesn't push things over, set them on fire. He's not also punching, lying, manipulating news sources, hiding his identity. He did things just a bit differently, and he actually hated injustice more than we do. He hates it more than we do. So he calls his people to look like him, you and me as the church, to have a voice and to be active. So we have to hate injustice as well. So I'm gonna just put some quick application to this before we stop. Because I do think that justice in Knoxville is gonna require something. I think it requires our empathy and our humble presence. And I wanna key in on that word presence because you can't do that on Twitter. It requires presence, literally making space, creating room and inviting in. This is what it requires, to be humble in our mission, right? I like how David Benner says this. He's got a book he wrote on friendship. I think it's appropriate here, though. He says, making space in my life is more demanding than giving advice, money, or some other form of help. The essence of hospitality is taking another person into my space and into my life. I think this is required if we're going to have empathy for our city. So whenever the weekend warriors go home, you're just clocking in. We got a ways to go. And whenever God has put a cause on your heart, a cause that looks like undoing injustice, you can count on there being a confrontation with your time and your comfort. That's going to happen. I've done a little bit of reading, not a lot, but I've always been fascinated about how the church, when met with the depravity of the Roman Empire, surged. We talked about it a little bit earlier, about how when they would throw babies down into sewers, because they wouldn't even bury them, they would just throw them into sewers, right? Archaeology has proven that much. The church would come and rescue them, right? And then they would, they would take the elderly who were being left to die, and the sick and the handicapped, and they would collect them all and build a beautiful body, a beautiful church. Friends, you don't think that costs time and money and comfort and convenience? That just sounds like a heavy price tag. That's what stands out to me. What the church did was costly. Go ahead and ask some parents in here who have adopted and fostered. Ask them how that was those first years. They'll tell you that they don't regret it. Believe them. It's not a regrettable thing to do, but it was costly. Comfort, convenience, time, money. They had to create space. So our protesting and our activism, if it is real, it's going to need to cost us, especially when the world is clocked out. I think justice in this city is also going to require a sacrificial and loving investment. So instead of presence, I'm going to talk about investment because we can't just be present, we have to be sacrificially present. Okay? Can't just be present, we have to be sacrificially present. This means that we're going to die a little bit. We're going to lose a piece of ourselves when we protest. David Benner goes on to say, to be present to you means I must be prepared temporarily to be absent to me. 
I must therefore set aside all the things I carry with me all day long, my planning for what comes next, my evaluation of how I'm doing, and my reflection on what is presently transpiring. These are the distractions that keep me focused on myself and make it impossible for me to be present to another person. I think those are wise, those, those are wise words for us. I think they're equally applicable. I think one of my favorite churches for the city is Charles Spurgeon's when he built uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. It's a very good example of what I'm talking about. He built a beautiful church, right? But what a lot of people don't know is he also built a pastor's college that planted 200 churches. Think about that for a minute. Most of the time providing all of their material for them. That was costly. We did a little, we did a little residency here for pastors and planters and that was not a small item in our budget I could not imagine 200 times that he was also starting to buy up houses at one time they owned as many as 18 homes in the inner London area that they built just to hold the elderly because London doesn't know what to do with the elderly it's not like they had retirement villages so they would actually create spaces and invest that's their activism it's not going to show up on the news and it's not going to let you clock out this is a very deep form of loving the city. This will all cost money. Listen, we're gonna plant a church in a few weeks, right out of this one, West County. And just know that when we do, just know that when we do, that costs us a ton of money and time. A ton of money and time. We've been talking and planning and talking and planning and working towards this for a long time, years. Right? And we're gonna keep doing it. It's, and even now, as a church, we're still, looking, we're still looking and hunting and flipping over every rock we can think of to position this church a little closer to where we need to be in that downtown north area, right? But listen, that's going to be costly, not because we're going to buy a building or rent a building or build a cool foyer or get a sound system. It's going to be expensive because I'm looking downfield. We're going to buy city blocks, or, or, or help kids with college tuition? Or what if we built a school for business owners in that neighborhood to start small businesses? That does not happen for free. And that's not an activism that's very splashy. Probably won't have its own special website or anything like that. Won't have any special t-shirts made up for that, right? It's gonna be hard work though. What will this mean for you? Sacrificial giving. That's probably another sermon. But protesting injustice just straight up costs a ton of money. So again, if this level of city investment is hard for you, are you able to enjoy the same investment in protesting that happened for you? For you. How's that looking? Because you've got to receive love and kindness in order to extend it to others. You have to be the rescued and enjoy your position as one who is rescued by a very, very good and kind Savior before you could ever, ever step in with a heavy voice in this city. And then what about when we fail at all of this? We do have one that met justice for us while we were the orphan and the beat up and the left for dead. There was an answer. We were bleeding from the side of the road. Jesus invested in us at his cost, regardless of what we could do for him, and this is grace. God's beauty given to you, his favor given to you totally despite you despite your ability to be the next Martin Luther King, the next Colin Kaepernick, you know, despite your ability to be whoever, the next whatever, he loves you. Your failure, he loves you. You've got to hear that. If you were in his church, if you were a son or a daughter, what you do as far as social activism it won't move the needle for his affection for you. It won't. 
Okay, go ahead and stand with me. I've got to get out of this sermon, so I've spent too long in this. I'm going to read this to you one more time, John Adams' diary. I'm going to personalize it, okay? Legacy Church should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking, something so daring, so firm, intrepid and inflexible. And it must have so important of consequence and so lasting that we cannot consider it as anything else besides an epic in history. That's important for us. Let me pray. As we pray, I'm just going to read a passage over you. It says in Isaiah, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And Lord, I I also see in your word what it looks like when social justice is brought and all injustice is ruined and destroyed and put in the tomb. You say that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, no strife. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, no conflict. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my mountain, for the earth shall be the full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. First and foremost, we thank you and we celebrate your protest against death and sin and destruction for us, for your church. You are the greatest activist, being empathetic, being humble, and being kind, even though we are disagreeable to work with, even though we didn't even ask for it, even though we were dead on the side of the road, not hurting, but dead. You are the original, beautiful general who fought through and then stripped down for us. So, Lord, as we talk about being an activist church, and as I'm hungry as a leader to be a church of activism in the city for the city, Father, that we would not come off the ramp in one direction or the other, doing it just because it's the right thing to do, just because justice is, is good, or doing it so that we could be popular and get more people, but doing it so that people see the gospel, so that they see their, their own depravity and they cry out for a king and they lay their life down at your feet. Lord, we don't just pray for a social justice to set things right here on earth, but Lord, to set things right in our soul. Lord, we thank you that even though this city is broken and tortured, you have built us a beautiful city, a better city. And we love you and we're very thankful. And Lord, I know that even as I preach this, I know that there are souls in here who they don't know if they are saved, They don't know if they're part of this thing called the church. Maybe they are painfully aware that they are not, and I pray that you move on their heart. Lord, that you would reach them and rescue them and show them that they are the bleeding mass on the side of the road and that there's no way that they could take care of themselves. They have to be loaded on an animal. They have to be moved to a safe place. They have to be cared for at your cost, at our benefit, that they would see that there's no other way besides perishing without that. Lord, help us as a church. Help us, help our hearts, Lord. Show us where we need to repent. Show us where repentance needs to happen with maybe the way that we've held too tightly onto some things that we've grown up with. 
Maybe because we haven't cared about things that we should care about. Whatever it is in our heart that is really crumbling under the weight of your word and your gospel, that we would just repent in this moment and lay before you our life and our grid and our worldview. We love you, Jesus. You're so precious to us. We celebrate your name. Amen.